Welcome to Under the Skin, where I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history we are told. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery. Pre-order your copy by going to russellbrand.com. Have a look at it. The website's all new now. Now, on Under the Skin this week, we've got Al Gore. It's a shorter episode, not because Al Gore walked out in disgust. In fact, he seemed to uh, enjoy the experience. You can look at it on our YouTube channel or you can look at it on, on uh, Facebook. We've got all the footage up. Uh, it was interesting because time was limited and it's a much more high-profile interview than we're used to. We've had Frankie Boyle on here, we've had Naomi Klein on here, but mostly we talked to academics and intellectuals. Now, we went and saw the film, we enjoyed the film, but because I only had half hour to talk to Al Gore, I wanted to get across my sort of main points. Normally, these interviews are obviously prepped by Gareth, who produces the show, so he writes out sort of like, you know, get these areas, get these areas. But of course, you know me, I'm a very spontaneous guy and I do my own stuff, but because you have to go and see the film if you're going to interview Al Gore... It meant I was unusually prepared <laughs> for the interview, so I had loads of sort of actual questions because I did enjoy the film, and obviously it's an important issue. And I'm not a like, climate change denier type guy. I think that if you are, if you're prioritising materialism and consumerism over ecology, it's really, really bad for the planet. But my general tack was. This is a really extreme problem. It requires an extreme solution. Basically, fight fire with fire, emotional fire. So, like, I'm trying to do an hour-long interview in half an hour. Now, you already know me. I already I talk quick at the best of times, so, but I'm doubling up the speed for this particular one. And I want to get across my main points, like uh, which was influenced by Satish Kaur's idea that you, there's no point changing the external world without an accompanying internal change. Or as he said to Bertrand Russell in the late 60s, a prominent campaigner for nuclear disarmament as well as philosopher he said there's no point in you getting rid of bloody nuclear weapons unless you change the mindset that created them and bertrand russell went oh for god's sake no <laughs> but like so i was trying to hit al gore with that kind of point it's going to be take radicalism to change the world significantly because of the economic interest gareth's the producer of the show how do you think the interview went gal it was quick, wasn't it? Yeah, we don't because normally this is an hour long, and this show was twenty-two minutes, like twenty-two minutes with Al Gore. Yeah, you basically got to the second half of the interview at the beginning. So there was no. But my favorite. There was bits, no easing in. There was no easing in, and one of my favorite bits was the metaphor where I said that Clinton and Obama paved the way for Donald Trump, but using a sort of a quite a sexualized metaphor, using words like lubricant and fluffing, and I also liked the bit where I said, like, you know, stuff that you'd get killed for if you said it out loud. And I was watching his face very carefully when I said that, and he didn't go, no. So I reckon he did. <laughs> what I basically think, and you know my views about systems and politics, but that Al Gore has a, is a man of integrity and is a missionary. You know, he comes from a Christian tradition, and like most people that have religious faith, he's not up for sticking that front and centre. That is the very essence of secularism, that your religious beliefs are private and that your religious beliefs should be separate from power. But in a way, it's a bogus idea because modern democracy is formulated from ideas that are founded in Christianity, particularly Protestantism. If you don't believe me, mate, believe Max Weber. He wrote all about it. And that's why Northern European countries have better economies than Southern European countries because we had the good sense to focus on Protestantism, not Catholicism. And I've got two Catholics in the room, and Gareth's one of them. Anything that you think that people should watch out for in the interview, mate? I think people should just keep in their minds that it's a short interview and you, you really had to get through it. Yeah, There were like, a lot of questions, you had to get through it quickly. It seems a bit intense in times, but yeah. it's very entertaining, as Al himself said. 
Very entertaining, he said. And the mics were probably still up. We can probably include that. We should probably include yeah, it right up to the minute he walks out the door. The yeah, anything that makes it feel like he's onside, <laughs> I think we should keep him. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, now the proper bit of Under the Skin. American politician and environmentalist who served as the 45th vice president of the United States under Bill Clinton, hopefully to the side of Bill Clinton. For most of his adult life, he has warned of the dangers of global warming and in his 2006 documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, revealed the eye-opening presentation he had been delivering around the globe for decades. The movie earned $50 million worldwide and won, dollars that is, and won an Oscar for Best Documentary. And in 2007, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his environmental work. That's impressive, isn't it? Gore now returns to the big screens with an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Mr. Vice President Al Gore, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me, Russell. It must be strange. I watched your film, and I loved your film. Whenever you come into a room, everyone stands up. Is that standard? Even, like, (laughs) you get standing ovations before a joke's been delivered. Well, sometimes, sometimes. But it seemed to be the case in the film. Now, I, just to establish it so that you don't feel um, obligated and tense about the promotional aspect of what this interview must contain... I think it is important for people to see this film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Speaking Truth to Power, because for me, it rendered the issues of uh, our global ecology in a way that was easy to understand, made it clear that there is an imperative that we act now, but also there is great cause to optimism, that there are shifts both from right-wing thinking people, like your man at the end there, that sort of a lovely mayor who shifted in Georgetown, which is, I think, sort of like the bullseye of what you would call conventional republicanism, and also... That the, the politics can be functional and effective. That's what I got from the, your activity at the Paris Climate yeah. uh, Conference, where you were able to put together that deal with a solar energy company in India, who may have reneged uh, on on on, a, on the sort of on the Paris Climate Agreement. Little did we know then it would be the United States that would renege on that <laughs> deal anyway. So, like, I think it's an important film for people to see. One of the things that struck me, uh, Mr. Vice President, was the way that you appear to be guided to some degree by your spirituality, by your faith. Mm. Much of it was uh, like uh, words like mission, that you see as a personal mm. mission, and uh, also that some of the language is somewhat biblical, unavoidably, because of the scale mm. of the ecological disaster we are facing. How, do, how does your spiritual perspective inform your mission to affect global ecology and our attitude towards it? Well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this interview and for putting so much thought into it, Russell. Um, I don't wear my uh, spirituality or religion on my sleeve, but it is a core part of who I am. And this is uh, an issue of biblical scale in the sense that the future of humanity could be at risk were we not to grab hold of this crisis and solve it. The good news is that we are beginning to do just that. But but there is so much at stake. You, it's really essential to put it in the context of uh, will we have a future or not? Again, I'm convinced we will, mm. but uh, th- this is not the normal issue. We're now seven and a half billion people. Our technologies are incredibly 
powerful and we have to wrestle with our vulnerability to short-term thinking and greed mm, uh, mm. and behaviors that don't really uh, move us forward into the future. Which are indeed spiritual issues. Greed is a spiritual issue. One of the things I was struck with time and time again, because greed is uh, to prioritize personal need over social need or fraternity, the brotherhood of man, the collective, is a sp- it is a spiritual issue because individualism. I was clocking Betsy's face in the background. I'm always scanning rooms. Is the way I live. Um, so, Mr. Vice President, I like saying Mr. Vice President, by the way. Mm. It's an enjoyable thing for a person to say. Really? Often I have professors and doctors in here. Mm. And yeah, I'm such a little lick, social climbing lick spittle. <laughs> if I get to use like a term like that, it, it fuels my own sense of grandiosity. Now, if we live in a world where a conceptual and a fictitious idea such as economy is prioritised over an actual, factual and material idea such as ecology, what hope do we have? How... how can we change people's conception of ecology when we have a a generation of people that have been schooled in consumerist capitalist thinking? How are we going to unpick that in a generation? Do you think that economic arguments such as solar panels are cheaper will be a sufficient tool to unpick generations of indoctrination, people that have been taught to think like capitalists? Mm. Well, I think that the, the rapidly declining cost... Uh, both solar and wind, and now electric cars, and now batteries, Mm. and sustainable agriculture, forestry, fisheries. These new techniques will help us. But I I think you're right that the emphasis on mass consumption as a pathway to happiness is definitely a part of the issue. You and I probably disagree on... um, the role of capitalism per se, and I, I don't want to get sidetracked too much into that, but I want Do you think it is a sidetrack? Because how is it that people can ever think of the world as their home in the way that yeah. you evidently do with your affectionate uh, and rather beautiful attachment to that image of yeah. the earth, that first photograph, when people clearly see the earth as a resource, mm. culturally, economically, and I think on a deep philosophical less level, if people see the outside world as something mm. that can be consumed, relationships that are consumed, commodities mm. that are consumed, ideas, media that are consumed, without a fundamental and significant shift, how can you hope to achieve such an ambitious a goal, thanks mate, as saving the world? Yeah, well I do totally agree with you uh, that uh, we need a shift in consciousness and we need a, 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 a keen awareness of what we're doing to the earth. Uh, and but, but I do want to tell you about my views where capitalism is concerned. I believe that the alternatives to capitalism in some form were explored in the 20th century, both on the left and the right, and they were found to have uh, some, some serious uh, problems and excesses. But capitalism in its current form, I think, is in need of serious reform. We need to start putting a price on the so-called externalities like pollution. Also, the positive externalities. We count investments in education and mental health care and treatment for addictions and community services as, as an expense. And then we ignore the benefits of those expenditures. So that's a distinction 
distortion that needs to be remedied. We don't account for the depletion of natural resources, and we should. We ignore the growing inequality in incomes, which is threatening the future of democracy if we don't address it. Yes, because built into the economic model uh, under which we labour, there is no potentiality for the inclusion of yeah, that criteria. That's right. Now, the failings of the ideologies of the last century and all their extremism and the war and the havoc that they wreaked, mm. him, for me, does not put a full stop on the potential for new systems okay. and evolving systems okay. emerging. National socialism, terrible, terrible idea. Mm. Communism as practice, particularly Soviet communism, which really repeated the model of the czarism that preceded mm. it rather mm-hmm. than being a legitimate you know, Soviet mm. experience where power was mm. paralleled and equalised. Uh, you know, clearly a, a huge failure. But that doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be huge shifts. I'm thinking, of, I've read this quote, and I wonder you think about it. It's by this man called uh, Satish Kaur. When he spoke to Bertrand Russell, who obviously in the late 60s was a prominent campaigner for nuclear disarmament, he said, what's the point in getting rid of these nuclear missiles if we don't change the consciousness that invented them? Because mm. people will continue to manifest these kind of mm. tools and these kind of weapons. Something about that stays with me, that what you seem to have experienced personally mm. is a transformation in the way that you see the world. Mm-hmm. Now, how much impact can be had politicking at the Paris climate to get India to accept solar power only for the US to renege on it because of individualism, consumerism, materialism, a platform that's been laid for 50 years mm. for Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't appear in a vacuum, mm. although there seems to be one inside of him. You know, like, so, like, you know, so I think that how do... I think we have to be... To achieve the kind of thing that you want to achieve, I think that there needs to be a transformation on, the, on an individual level that is quite, quite profound. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, I think that there are fundamental truths about human nature that are going to cause both problems and opportunities, whatever political or economic system we find ourselves living in. I, I have always had immense respect for those uh, for the founders of the United States of America because they were humanists who separated religion from politics and actually took into account some of these truths about human nature. And uh, 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 a British citizen, Lord Acton, said famously, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And putting boundaries around the accumulation of too much power by a single individual or a small group of individuals, either in the political system or the economic system, is a recipe for danger. And one of the problems we have this, one of the reasons we have this climate crisis is that the large carbon polluters have accumulated too much power to influence our politics. And they've distorted the conversation about climate by using their money to put out climate denial and create Mm. false doubts in exactly the same way that the tobacco companies did years ago. They hired actors and dressed them up as doctors and put them in front of cameras to falsely reassure people that what the doctors had found out about smoking cigarettes and lung cancer Mm. was not true. And now the carbon polluters are doing exactly the same thing about the climate crisis. Except with a, a half a century of entrenchment funding for academic studies. So now they don't require actors because the whole thing is theatre. The whole thing is a play. Now when you talk about the potency of uh, uh, utility monopolies, uh, Mr Vice President Al Gore, who's a long name to say continually. <laughs> you can just ch- use Al if just you want. Just say Al. Call just me say Al. Al. It's actually yeah. happened. Or, I knew this would or, happen at some or point. your adequacy, if you want to be proper. Your adequacy? Is that, that's a formal... Oh, okay, instead of 
with your excellency. Yeah, oh, that's Al so was, sweet. Al is fine. Oh, because I thought a minute for a minute you were laughing at their rigmaroles of English culture, Your Highness. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we love a title over here, by God. For a person that's been Vice President of the United States, in, uh, in a period in which many of the economic decisions that have led to the kind of entrenched monopoly, uh, utility monopolies that we are under which America now suffers, is it perhaps that's a fair word? You, you know, you were there. Yes. And so I've heard it said before that a lot of people said, oh, I left Parliament or I left Congress so I could focus on politics, you know, because, <laughs> you know, Yanis Varoufakis came in here once and he said politicians only have power within the limitations of their role. Did you find that when you were Vice President of the United States, that your power was quite limited, that your ability to be effective, particularly with the issues that you're passionate about, like ecology, were limited because ultimately state power is nullified by superseding economic powers and financial interests? Well, I think uh, the skillful exercise of political power uh, which includes the mobilizing of public opinion, can bring about a more potential for change than perhaps in any other position. But uh, one of the limitations of working in the White House is that you cannot focus only on one issue. You have the responsibility to focus on on many. And one of the luxuries that I have now is the, the freedom to focus almost exclusively on the climate crisis and those elements of the crisis that are connected to the way our news media operates, the way our economic system operates. But I see it almost exclusively now through the lens of the climate crisis. And, and I think we, we have to make it the top priority. I agree with you, but is that sort of a, a, a moot point unless there is sort of powerful legislation on an international level that either pre- prevents or prohibits profiteering by these monopoly utilities that you speak? Wouldn't it affect like, the core crises of our planet? It's like, well, the way the oil is refined, the amount of profit these yeah. companies... You know, like you said, they're more heavily... Like, traditional energy resources are more heavily subsidised than modern renewable energy 40 resources. Forty times as much. So wouldn't you make that illegal much. overnight? Just say, stop stop subsidising it, make global change. Doesn't it require a kind of radicalism? Because when I see these apocalyptic, revelatory images, fires, storms, Filipino mm. death, mm. then I think, well, it's not too much to ask to simply say, right... From like you know, forget twenty forty or twenty fifty or some other mm. far flung title of a Kubrickian movie. Tomorrow, no more profiting. Like these are now, now that's not possible, is it? Because the political and economic model, which is in a way fictitious, is conjured by the consciousness of man, will not permit it. You can't make those kind of changes. You can't say, well, that's, there's no more GM anymore. There's no Exxon. Exxon's closed. State a, reclaims it. There was a famous economist who once said, uh, things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen much faster than you thought they could. And changes in consciousness sometimes take time, but they can occur. And this climate movement is very much in the tradition of previous movements that changed consciousness, the abolition of slavery, the granting of the right to vote to women, the civil rights Mm. movement in in my country, anti-apartheid, most recently the gay rights movement. If someone had told me even five years ago that gay marriage would be legal in all 50 U.S. states, 
States and would be accepted, honored, and celebrated by two-thirds of the American people, I would have said, I sure hope so, but I think you're being completely unrealistic. But the climate movement, like all these previous movements, eventually gets to the point where the straw men are discarded mm-hmm. and you see the central question, which is a choice between what is moral and right and what is immoral and wrong. And that's where we, we are right at that tipping point in the climate movement now. I hear you, Al, but a prominent civil rights campaigner once said to me, like, power will always yield on civil rights issues eventually because ultimately it doesn't affect their 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 resources. Mm. But when you go for money, that's when you will face resistance. Now, and, and, and to be um, pernickety, whilst there have been huge successes in civil rights in the last half century, you know, like one, don't have to spend too long on Google to see that you know, African-American... Right. So, and, and now we're talking about something where there is a huge ticking clock. So, I don't... I suppose it's not like I want to encourage hysteria, but I sort of sense that radicalism is required. And you, in your new transcendent role, your role as a kind of global mensch, a bodhisattva <laughs> of the climate movement, are sort of uniquely positioned to spell out just how, like parts of the film I watch and I think, my God, this is a serious, serious crisis and you're educating people all over the world, you're doing a tremendous job, who am I, a mere celebrity, to uh, even question you on this subject. But my point is, is there's a type of, it seems to me, my intuition is, that there is such an entrenched corruption within politics, that the financial industry has these things sewn up so deeply that ordinary people find it so hard to have purchased, that in each of the issues that you have said, whether it's women's rights, African-American rights, civil rights, apartheid, blood is spilled, great men are imprisoned, women die in chains mm. before anything changes. Do we have this time with this apocalyptic issue? Do we not have to evoke the deities and the demons? Do we not have to speak to level, people on the level of their deepest, truest self about what kind of world they want to live in, what they're prepared to sacrifice, who they're prepared to confront and yeah. when? Yeah, I- I don't disagree with that at all. I think it is time for people to to take action, absolutely. And and, and to, uh, I'm very proud my daughter was arrested uh, uh, in a protest against the new natural gas pipeline network in the U.S. And so, you know, times have changed when a parent says, oh, I'm so proud my daughter was arrested. And, and But I am. And what does that say about authority when a parent is now proud that authority is challenged? It says that authority is de facto corrupto. No? Well, like, and Donald Trump... Trump really is a, just a grotesque exagger- exaggeration of the preceding decades. No disrespect, because you took part in those administrations. But without Clinton, without Obama, you don't get Trump. We were being coached, we were being lubricated, we were being fluffed and prepared for the Trump for the, uh, the Trump thrust. I don't know what to call it. The phallic references seem somehow appropriate with that man. But but like, you know, we've school. we taught people to be individualist, we taught people to be materialist and consumerist, and now we're surprised when it's a selfish, racist sexist president that leads the world? Well, I I would interpret that history differently from the way you do. I think that that there are a lot of good people trapped in bad systems, but when you work for positive change, uh, sometimes there is a backlash, and I think that Trump represents a backlash. I think that Brexit represented a backlash. I think that for a lot of complex reasons, globalization, intelligence added to automation, uh, the growth of inequality, there is a lot of unhappiness and unrest about the stagnation of middle-income wages for yes, decades now. And th- and a demagogue can take advantage of that uh, and, and focus it in an irresponsible way. Mm.
But the nexus of each and every one of those issues is an economic system that will not yield power. You know, when we talk about, oh, how, why do we have this system? It's because the people that are dominant, this system works absolutely fine, thank you. We don't want to change it. We don't care if the planet is destroyed. We don't care if, there, uh, if there's economic inequality across the planet. I would see Brexit and Trump as, forgive my language, as a, a democratic population saying, fuck you, to power. In both cases, you're not looking after us. Why should we care? Why should we care? Yeah. No, We've been taught that Muslims are different. We've been taught that women are inferior. We've been taught all this talk about gay people. People are bored of hearing it because they've, for decade after decade, they've witnessed power not com- taking care of their interests. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there. I think this wave of populist authoritarianism is a response to the unhappiness and anxiety that people have been feeling for quite some time, but. How do we bring change in spite of economic interests uh, opposing it? Take one example, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. You talk about an economic uh, set of interests opposing that change. (laughs) That was massive. Nelson Mandela said it's always impossible until it's done. Uh, And this kind of change comes about sometimes when the potential for change builds up, pushing against a a barrier that suddenly gives way. and, Mm. and, And then you see a tremendous change that people did think was impossible, but eventually came. Yes, I think there's a generational aspect of change as well. Yes. I think the younger generation now is far more committed to saving the climate than those in in my generation. And I think it's because they've seen that every night on the news is like a nature hike through the book of Revelation. And if the news media doesn't connect the dots, then they connect the dots themselves. They mm. And they're understanding that this change is essential. It does require a new way of thinking. I absolutely agree with that. How do we bring that about? Uh, Ranting and railing against it has its place working within. And I'm not characterizing you that that way, Russell. Good. Thank you for clarifying. I myself have been characterized that way. I know. That's some of my favorite bits of the film, you ranting and railing bits. I think that has its place. But patiently working within the Mm. system as it exists to try to pull the levers and press the buttons and make the machinery operate in a more constructive way also has its place. But Al, every one of these examples you give, I can't help but think of a, a, an alternative narrative. You know, Nelson Mandela, he went down for 27 years. Mm. He was prepared to kill and die for what he believed in. Mm. And ultimately, I think if we investigated it, the, the apartheid ended when the economic interests that were that benefited from apartheid found a way of manoeuvring so that they could maintain their power without apartheid. Well, and having been to uh, South Africa relatively recently, I didn't fancy being black there much. You know what I mean? I didn't think, oh, this would be a doddle living in well, that the, township. But there's, White there's, people are still living behind barbed wire. You know, now, well, the way from my limited experience, it seems like what power does is what is the bare minimum we can give these people? What is the bare minimum? So if we aim at bare minimum, that's what they'll give us. So for me, it seems like what we should do is focus on <laughs> radical annihilation, overhaul and revolution. And that way we might get some kind of parity, some kind of justice. So, like, do you not think, like, I understand that real change is happening, you know, that solar power and and renewable energies is better. You're right. You're 100% right. So, like, why not focus on, identify the obstacles and then make it clear that these are the targets. Like, these companies are the problems. That's what I try to do. Attack.
that's exactly what what I try to do is to focus on Exxon Coke um, Brothers. Yes, absolutely. So why what like why if you like why can't we have right Exxon now has to be nationalized. It's already subsidized. We're already paying for it. So now we're going to own it. Why <laughs> well, can't you do that? Uh, you know, part of the movie focuses on the investigation of Exxon Mobil that's now underway. I hope they will be held legally accountable for the fact that they have financed climate denial, as the Koch brothers have financed climate denial. They, they've they tried to fool people into thinking the crisis isn't real, and now they're trying to fool people into thinking that the renewable alternatives are not viable and real as well. It's very insidious. Yes, it is insidious, and the consequence of it is, I suppose... Maybe a lot I am. I see the world differently. Since I recently became a father. I have a nine-month-old. Congratulations. Thank you, man. It's changed everything. I'm so in love with her. It's oh, incredible. What's Isn't her name? She's called Mabel. I went for a walk with her this morning in the oh. fields near where we live. I look at the tree. I look at every time. Oh. And I think about that our connection to nature is absolute. Mm. This is it. Yeah. Like, And when you show that image, as you repeatedly do in your film, An mm. Inconvenient Sequel, which, you know, it means a good title in a way. It's sort of ironic. I like it. It's cool. <laughs> but it's got the word inconvenient meta. in it. Meta. <laughs> it's meta. You're double meta <laughs> vice vice meta um like it makes me feel that we one has to nurture the inherent connection we have with this planet yes, we yes. have to personalize it yeah. all things have become commodified it's yes, very difficult for people yes. that are struggling to yeah. see the significance yeah. of broad global issues when globalization whilst it has brought sort of a commodity revolution and we've all got wonderful phones thank you very much they're delightful mm. what it's also done is it's turned us into a planet of consumers that yeah. see and this is why at the beginning of this interview i spoke about spirituality because i think this is mm. where the transformation must take place the way we regard the exterior world the way that we regard, regard ourselves and our role on this planet yeah. as you evidently do as a servant, mm. you are obviously living in service now. And the feeling that I, you know, if I dare be so bold as to speak for most people, I think most people think that politicians are corrupt, people in positions of power are untrustworthy and manipulative liars, and that we should divorce ourselves from power. And, and I think to have a person in your position who has been behind the curtain, who must know things that if you uttered them out loud, your life would be at risk, to see a person like you embracing an issue in this way is very, very heartening for ordinary mm, well, people. My hope is that we continue to aggressively pursue these issues and identify and target who the problem is yeah aggressively i agree i agree <laughs> this is a time for for passion this is a time for people to mobilize I, I couldn't agree more i wish we had you for longer vice president al gore but i know there are many many people to speak to uh, that you've got a, an important and busy schedule it's been really really lovely to have you here can, i respect you very I much say, one say thing. what you want man um the movie Mm. Uh, is in 340 theaters this Friday, and tickets are available at all of the places you get them. And then a week from Friday, it opens widely all across England, uh, an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Go and see it. You'll probably get more from it than... Uh, go, like, I watched it. I was really enjoying it. You might feel guilty in popcorn. 
like at certain points. You might <laughs> you might think, oh no, what am I doing with my life? But it's an optimistic <laughs> film. You will learn from it. I endorse this film. I went and saw it. Normally, you know how you have to. Sometimes if you interview, interview someone important like you, they force you to watch the film. Normally, I go, I'm fucking going anyway. Someone else watch it and tell me. This one, I actually went and saw myself, yeah. and I enjoyed it. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for saying that. And I, I like I your relationship with your dog. I like your cowboy boots. <laughs> I like I like a lot of things about you, Al Gore. Thank you. thank you for what you're doing for the world. Thank you for the interview. That is entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Al Gore and me talking at my caffeinated rapid best. I'm sorry if you found me difficult to put up with. So imagine how my poor mother felt bringing me up as a boy. Or my girlfriend and child feel. You've only had to put this on voluntarily unless you're being forced to listen to this as some bizarre punishment in a detainee centre in a dystopia that I can barely... Hold on a minute. No, I'm beginning to imagine it. There is a revolution. I do come out of some sort of megalomaniacal figure and you're forced to listen to these podcasts as a, because you were a dissenter. Yes, yes, all right. Well, even you. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, the show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery. To pre-order your copy, go to russellbrand.com. The website looks brilliant now. Check it out. If you like this show, please subscribe and review it in iTunes. Only give us five-star reviews because, uh, I don't know, it's good for an algorithm. 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 Ah, life, eh? Soon it's the boneyard. Enjoy it while you're here.